head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is the Prestige TV Podcast. Today we are recapping Succession Season 3, Episode 5, Retired Janitors of Idaho. It's written by Tony Roche and Susan Soon-Hee Stanton and directed by Kevin Bray. And joining me to talk about this episode is my belligerent zucchini in podcasting, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Hello. I have a quick question for you. How much bagel is too much bagel to feed a rabbit? I think we've learned even one tiny morsel of bagel is too much bagel Let's 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 go around in a circle of this uh, this this roundtable conversation about succession this week. This was the shareholder meet. That was the big sesh that we need to break down. Not exactly played out the way that I expected. This was a much punchier, zippier, Marx Brothers esque episode of Succession. What did you think of this one? Did you enjoy yourself? I did. I had a, I had a really good time. It's so interesting because I wasn't aware. I, I was I was tooling around read it yesterday to see sort of how like the 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 real succession heads felt about this episode. What do we what do we call them? The succeeders? What, mm, the the ro- heads? the royals? Oh, the ro- Oh, that's good. Well, we'll we'll workshop it. This we'll is workshop. why you're you. you did, I didn't even <laughs> prompt you on that and you were just like I got it the royals boom. Um, but Mike I I did not know. I think because I watched all seven episodes that they sent the press at once. What you avoid then is building up expectations of certain things, right? Because you're just like watching it all together. Um, but if you keep hearing shareholder meeting, shareholder meeting, shareholder meeting, maybe you're like building up an expectation of something. And from what I could glean from the Redditors, you know, they were expecting something. They thought this was going to be sort of the red wedding of succession. Yes. yes. When instead what happened is really nothing much has changed power-wise anywhere, right? At the end of the day. And I I don't have a complaint about that. I liked the sort of farcical doors and sardines of it all. Um I was I was I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty into it. So before we get further into our analysis, you've been you've been having terrific conversations with cast members from this show thus far this season. Did did you have one of those this week? I'm always tempted to say this character's name in the style of a certain like 90s daytime talk show host. So it's Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> Jace with Cameron's here. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> I love her too. This is a very fun 
week for her. She's going through a lot this season uh, as she attempts to claim some modicum of power as the interim CEO. How do you think she's faring right now? What I love about Jerry is how careful, how she thinks through every step all the time. Um, You know, there was some chatter about how when she popped on stage, she went to the video really quickly and got off the stage. And everyone's like, oh, she, you know, she wussed out. She went to the video. Um, is that better or worse than Frank having to stand up there and vamp dryly for an hour? I don't know how long Frank was up there, honestly. Um, but my favorite um, sort of calculated move, obviously the interaction with Roman is is always of paramount interest to us. But this idea of her putting Roman on the phone with the president, which we'll, we'll all get to, but like, um, is not just a throw, throw your favorite kid a bone, but also a classic Jerry move of having to sidestep a sticky situation. She's like, I don't not. Oh, oh, sure. It could be me, but what if it's not me? My favorite, uh, example of that is the hunting episode in season two, when, uh, she and I think it was Carl were trying to get Tom to do something and they're like, oh, sure, sure. It could be us. Could be us. But <laughs> maybe you, maybe, maybe it should be you who does it. You know, I love, I love anytime they're just sort of like slide something off their plate. And I think Jerry is sort of queen slider, uh, and all of that. So. You've located the active maneuvering. Maneuvering is probably the, the signature verb, the signature action in this whole show, this episode, perhaps more than any other, between the vamping, the dodging, the ducking, the evading, there's a lot of non-commitment to action here, with the rare exception of a couple of figures in this episode. So this episode is basically unlike the last few, which have been kind of divided into three or four or five strands, effectively has two strands. There is the Kendall Roy sitting on the sidelines, but operating as the quote-unquote puppet master of what will transpire. I guess you could say there's a small third strand of the Furnesses, the Sandy and Sandy and Stewie team, but whenever we see them, it's pretty much with the main thrust of this episode, which is essentially what is happening behind the curtain at the shareholders meeting. The shareholders meeting is happening. You'd think that that is where the throwdown is, but really it's I guess this is a, a lobby meeting room, of some f- absent floor in the in the in the hall where they are meeting, and all of those suited executives that you referred to, Carl and Frank and Jerry, are surrounded by the Roy clan. And again, it's a field trip. Every episode of the show is a field trip. They go to a place. There's no home base on the show. I'm going to point this out every time they do this. They have once again done this. But I thought I thought of you when they talked about taking away the private jet. By the way, mm. it, it like makes me physically ill to hear a private jet referred to as a PJ because that just <laughs> like that just indicates a casual like a casual like use of it that that just yeah, creeps it me does. out. Um, but have you anyway, ever been on a PJ? I've never been on a. Have you been on a PJ? I, I haven't. No. Okay. Yeah. Um. But I've been on a CP, a charter plane. Is that what you... Anyway. Okay, um, sure. I've been on one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not um, as fancy. No, no, no. They're usually like death traps. Um, <laughs> but... Or <laughs> sometimes. But uh, when they were talking about taking away the private jets, and I just remember the conversation we had where we were like, maybe the private jet is their actual home base. Like, And, and then I was like, oh, so this does matter to them. It matters too much to them. Roman saying like first they came from my private chest and I said nothing or whatever like whatever but um yeah it's interesting that you called it backstage that sort of solidified something for me um can I go down a, a potentially dry 
uh, theater avenue really quickly. Yeah, love love a dry avenue. Absolutely. <laughs> I said doors and sardines. Have you ever seen Noises Off? Like I, I certainly have. Well, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, one of my favorite filmmakers ever. Not one of my favorites of his films, just putting that out there. Sure. No, not a tremendous film. It's a great play. Um, I've seen it and then I was in it in high school and, uh, Doors and Sardines is sort of like the whole, oh, you've got it right. You pull like within arm's reach. I pulled it right off the shelf. pulled it right off the shelf. shelf. A good Michael Caine performance, I think. But, uh, oh, and a great Christopher Reeve, like comedy. I think it's his last before his accident, as I recall. Yes. So good in that. But, um, that's a, that's a classic farce. And the way that that play and the film work, well, the, the play more than the film is like the first, act is you're on stage watching these actors trying to rehearse a show that involves a lot of like in and out of doors and, you know, farcical slapstick. Second act is backstage. You're backstage with them. You already know what the play is though. So you're watching them grapple with everything going wrong on stage. And then by the third act, you really know it. So when everything goes wrong on this, you know, so the the set usually rotates if you see it in the theater, and so I love this idea of, the, of this being like the second act noises off. They're backstage, like their stage is sending Frank out, sending Carl out. Oh my God, Kendall's here. He's that's unscripted. He's not supposed to be on stage. Like all that sort of stuff. A real a real noises off vibe. Maybe that's why I loved it so much. So. One thing that I have been enjoying about doing this every week with you is it forces me to watch the show twice. Now, I normally would not watch the show a second time. Sometimes the second watch is deeply rewarding on a you know a personal viewing level. Sometimes it's just work a day. Let's make sure we got all these quotes correct as we have this conversation on the show. This one in particular, I thought, was loaded with foreshadowing and insinuation about what is to come. And I completely missed it. Maybe because the first time I watched it, you know, it's the witching hour with my baby. I'm trying to get her to chill out. I'm maybe not totally focused. I'm not looking at the closed captioning the way I need to. Second time around, though, from the very earliest moments, we watch Logan literally being bootstrapped in by Colin. And we see this exchange with he and Carrie. And we learn about the UTI very early on. And we hear about the pills. And we see the pills slide into the jacket pocket. I, I think I just completely missed that the first time. And this this was all avoidable. There is a complete alternative history about how this day plays out if a couple of things go differently here. Did you did you pick up on that? Did you sense that they were kind of like teasing us out for where we were going at the end of the hour? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that that only became clear on my second watch as well. I'm sure I wasn't like, oh, those pills, obviously. Well, I mean, nothing on succession is accidental. Right. And like, you could even say that this is seated further forward, we've been talking about it all season. Like last week, of course, um, his stumble on the, on the like hiking trail, but also from the very first episode when he's like, I can't get the shits or else we're screwed. Right. And like, um, I, in my having seen this episode made have put my foot on the gas a little bit to like call that moment out. But like that idea of like his physical health is paramount holding this whole thing together. It feels twinned you with know? the first season. The first season, it was very much the same, right. obviously. You know, he falls ill in that first season. And a lot of that whole first season, uh, in hindsight, is about building Logan Roy back up to his strength. And there's something, something is wrong. Something is wrong with Logan in a very profound way. And that is the, that, that to me is the biggest takeaway from this episode is that he is not likely to improve physically as his life goes on at this point. And we have to think about like what that means for all of the characters on this show. And to me, what the person who jumps out most specifically is Shiv and Shiv's relationship to Logan throughout season three has been deeply fraught. 
and fa- fascinating the way they're drawing it so far. Um, where, where do we where do we find Shiv in this episode? Because she is really a driving force. It's frustrating because you know you and I had talked about this a little bit before the season started. Our our um, beloved Overlord Bill Simmons has his idea about like Shiv's uh, you know competence in the role. He was sort of banging the drum earlier about like, is Shiv actually good at her job? And then like within this um, season, people feel free to call her out as like a dipshit or a fake or Roman calls her a bitch or like whatever, you know, all of her brothers are ready to like throw in and there's nothing really we can point to. Like, I, I don't think what happened with Carl and Frank last week is her fault, but that it's weak management that, you know, they felt like they could go rat her out to her dad or go over her head or something like that. But in this episode with it should be said an assist from Kendall, like she gets the job done. Like she and Kendall together, I think that's how I would assess it. Close the deal, a deal that they desperately needed. And, uh, and of course, Logan can't stand that. And of course he's going to try to make her feel because there's no winning with Logan because he wants you to be independent until you're too independent. And then he's going to smack you down. That was my takeaway too. Yes. Basically he has, he, he entrusts you with power until it becomes clear that you have power. And then he takes the power away from you. He's, he also is, is like a spoiled child. He's just like his children. Well, yeah. And that becomes especially evident in this episode as he becomes childlike in his illness, you know, and everything with a cat and all of that. Uh, just shout out to Colin's commitment to the bit because when he takes the bag with the cat and the non-existent cat and runs with it, like he keeps running, he like does. well out of like Logan's eyeline, he keeps running. Colin's like, I have a job. And I'm that's a, that's a Marx Brothers moment. You know, that's, that's, that's why I cite that. So I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but I'm very curious for your very specific take on this. Did Shiv make a good deal for this family by the end of this episode? I think she made the deal that they needed mm-hmm. in this moment. And what I'm really happy for is that she made a little deal for herself while she was doing it. Yes. And I'm proud of her for that. That so. quiet little moment, that almost unspoken moment between Sandy and, and Shiv, it feels very meaningful to me. And that it was at that moment that I was like, oh, this is why Hope Davis is on the show. This is, is this laying track for the next three years of this show? It I could would love be. that. I would love that. If Hope shows up as much, if not more than Stewie, like that, you know, if Sandy shows up as much, uh, as not, if not more than Stewie, or if I'm always like, it's never enough Stewie for me personally. And he's, also he's yeah, brilliant. Ahead. And I wonder if he is a little bit like Tabasco sauce, a little bit goes mm, a long way. That's, that might be true. Um, I do need to shout out uh, a great fun little dig at my former bosses at Vanity Fair when he's like <laughs> making of fun of Kendall. Yeah. Um, I have it on good authority that the folks at Vanity Fair loved that line. So they're not <laughs> offended, but it was a fun little like poke at the woker era of Vanity Fair under um, my uh, old boss, Radika Jones, who's the best. And I, and I love the direction that Vanity Fair went in the last couple of years, but it's the perfect publication. It's just how media savvy this show is. You know, you could absolutely see the, you know, the Kendall Roy tell all, you know, 3000 word feature running on, on Vanity Fair. That was pitch perfect from Stewie. Um, So, well, I want to ask you a quick question about hope though, if that's okay, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to ask you about the guest stars in this season, Mm -hmm. because this is something I'm noodling over as we get closer to you having seen all the episodes that I've seen. Like, we knew that Adrian Brody was in the season. We knew Alexander Sarsgaard was in the season. We knew Hope Davis was in the season. Um, Adrian Brody, I sent you this photo in Slack and I've heard some other 
TV critics talk about this, so I don't feel like I'm betraying any major secrets. But when I was set a cut of this episode, this the crowd scene where you see Adrian Brody like two rows back, uh, the VFX shot wasn't done. So it was very clear that he had been like pasted over into the scene, which if you listen to our chat with Adrian Brody last week is why I asked him about COVID because I was sort of hoping he would say, well, in one day they just had me sit in a chair and lit me so that they could <laughs> copy paste me into a crowd scene. But he didn't say that. Um, and I didn't feel like I could ask him about that. But um, if Adrian Brody winds up just being kind of like a one episode character, Hope Davis has been here like here and there. And Alexandra Sarsgaard hasn't even arrived yet versus last season when Holly Hunter felt like she was folded into the cast for the season or Cherry Jones, even though she was in it less, like felt like she's folded in. These feel like a little different. I have to wonder if it's like COVID, you know, dependent. It might be, but um, how, how does it feel to you that the use of guest stars this season versus last? I think you're right that it is a little bit more like the love boat where it's sort of like somebody comes in for one crazy story and then they get pulled right out of it. And there are some downsides to that. That being said, what it makes me realize about the show, and I think this is really the first time that a serialized prestige drama has ever been this good at this thing. This is a show that lets every character get one lick, one moment in every episode. I've never seen the the ball movement that the easily dispersed assists all throughout an episode. Greg gets a shot. Frank gets a shot. We see Frank and Carl were added to the full cast this year and they feel vital. Hugo is in the cast and he feels like Carolina has not left. In fact, Jess has a bigger role this year than she had last year. Carrie has a bigger role than they had last year. This is like, this is kind of amazing that they're able to basically invite Academy Award winners onto the show to do 35 minutes of work and then say goodbye to them, not really at the expense of the rest of the growing cast. If you think about Mad Men, you think about Breaking Bad, I guess there's a case for Game of Thrones here, but I don't think Game of Thrones wielded guest stars quite the way that this show is right now. No, I mean, when it did, it felt stunty, I think. Like Ian McShane shows up for an episode or... um... That was so disappointing, that episode for me. I don't want to get you on a Thrones jag, but like I love Deadwood so much and that didn't live up. No, I think it was always a mistake when they brought those people like sort of stood. And that's how I feel about like a one episode guest star in a way that I don't feel about Holly Hunter or Cherry Jones last season. Because again, be they built into I, the show. I don't mind there being an Adrian Brody episode of Succession. I, it was a great episode, a great piece of work for a great actor. But I think I preferred last season when it felt like, and I, it just reminded me of like, again, I go back to this all the time, but the, um, the like mm, FX dramas of like 10 to eight years ago or whatever, when there would be like a new big bad this mm-hmm. season, you know what yes. I mean? And, and Damages. Like, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Justified and, yeah, yeah. and Sons of Anarchy and whatever. And like, who's here? this season to show off all season and just, you know, shoot, mix it Mar- up. Margot Martindale is undefeated in that role, by the way. Perfect. A perfect season of television, justified season two. So, um, so yeah, so I think I, I kind of prefer it the other way, but again, like if this is, if this has something to do with COVID, I can't begrudge it. And I'll, I'll, and obviously like it's, it's been well used. Also quick point about last week's episode. We got so many people tweet at us that Adrian Brody was reading crime and punishment, the vintage classics edition. I can only say in my defense, I looked at my copy of Crime and Punishment. I'm a Signet Classics uh, person. But uh, thank you everyone for your photos of your copies of Crime and Punishment. I really 
I got a kick out of it. Have you got any questions about this week's episode that you want to crowdsource with the community listening to the show? Thanks to everybody listening to the show, by the way. Holy shit. A lot of people are listening and I really appreciate that. Uh, where's Willa? That's my question. Oh, speaking of letting everyone get a lick, I have overlooked Willa. Where Damn. is she? I don't she's know. added to the cast, and I was, you know, hoping that Justine Luke would have more to do. But maybe she's back to the drawing board and, you know, doing draft two on what is the name of her play? Does it have a name? Sands. I think. Sands. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sands well, too. Sandier. She's, hopefully, she's uh, <laughs> revising her work, or maybe taking it back to off off Broadway, where it really all started for her. Let's go back to this episode. Yeah. In addition to Logan's pills and Carrie's role and Colin's role in this episode, we also see very early on when Schiff comes into the room that Logan begins to bristle at her even before she makes the deal. That uh uh-huh that he gives her at the beginning of the episode. Also on second watch, I was like, okay, there's something really brewing between these two that they don't like. And we also see that Logan, it seems like almost sort of has a death wish here. You know, he really wants to win the macho fight with Sandy at potentially the expense of his own company. Now, I will say, I've talked to a couple of friends who have more experience in this realm of corporate power management. Uh-huh, yeah. And and those friends have said this was not one of their favorite episodes because it seemed highly unrealistic that someone mm-hmm. in Logan's position would really ever lose control of their company. I I don't think I know enough to say that that seems unrealistic, but the way that the show positions things, it sure seems like they're on a knife's edge there for the first 30 minutes, right? Yeah, and and something that they point out is that this is a deal that should have been done so long ago that like when Frank and Carl were taking their lunch breaks, that's when this deal should have been ironed out, (laughs) not in the hotel, in the Hyatt or wherever they were, you know, while, while the clock is ticking on everything. So I I just think that, um, yeah, it's interesting though. Um, it's interesting to hear from, from your friends in that arena that they didn't like the episode because I've certainly like watched plenty of episodes, like, like, you know, that center on journalism, let's say, that are highly unrealistic, but I can still enjoy them even if I'm like, this person doesn't know what they're talking about in terms of journalism. But yes, um, suspension but I, but of disbelief, despite yeah. your experiences, is, is an essential part of this this sort of thing. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a, a, an RN, and I, you know, when watching ER with them as a kid, they would just like constant monologue of like everything that was wrong about you know, that show, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine what it's like to watch NYPD Blue with my father, who was a police (laughs) officer. Just not ideal. Not a huge fan of the procedural aspects of that show. Wait, can I ask you a quick question about watching Succession with with your kiddo? Yeah. Is she Team Logan or Team Kendall, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) She's Team make eye contact with me and hold me in just the exact correct way. Otherwise, I will make this a very difficult hour of television for you. So I would say she doesn't have a rooting interest other than my affections slash physical attention. That sounds um, like classic Logan to me. I'm going to put it, her down as team Logan. <laughs> if you were me, what direction would you coach her in? Um, well, it depends like what kind of uh, relationship you want to have with <laughs> oh, her. Jesus because, like, Christ. <laughs> you strike me as like, if you had to pick your team Kendall, right? Aren't you? Oh God. But what, is that, what is that signal? I mean, Jesus, like a fo- false wokeness. Like I, I don't want to be cast in with that the one either. Lesser of two evils, possibly. Yeah, I, I don't I know. I guess so. They're both pretty gnarly as but far like, as that goes. Of course. But like, would you rather be, I'm starting to become like team Stewie, like team Stewie, team Sandy, let them take control of the company. I don't yeah. know. But, Pragmatic um, viciousness, you think is the, is the way to go? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> While wearing a turtleneck to a to a shareholder meeting, no. Um, but if you want to have like a fun spirited 
debate, TV debate with your daughter every week, you would want her to be on the opposite side of the team, right? I got to say, my wife would not enjoy that as I spend most of my time debating pop culture stories publicly, professionally. I think leaving that out of our private life is probably the way to go. That being said, I'm incorrigible and will probably do exactly what you're describing. Speaking of Kendall. Yeah. What do you think of the Kendall Roy experience in this episode? Because he um he's stretching himself to insinuate himself into this week's story. What'd you make of it? I mean, again... I mean, he's self-aggrandizing, the puppet master garbage, the eagle's airy garbage, oh my like God. all that sort of stuff. Like, all of that is is terrible, terrible classic Kendall. Something that was really interesting upon, like, I don't know, it might have been, like, my third rewatch of this episode. When he comes in and he's, start, and he's yelling at everyone about how they're letting it slip through their fingers and his work and all that sort of stuff. I feel like Jeremy Strong tapped into a level of yelling we haven't seen from Kendall ever. It felt like a lot, like a loss of control, a different kind of loss of control. He doesn't really yell like that uh, in that register. So um, the Kendall Roy experience, something I would never buy tickets to. Um, <laughs> is that a magic show? Is it more like, <laughs> is it prog rock? What, what is happening at the Kendall Roy experience? Oh my God. Imagine the like <laughs> sweet, sweet flute action. On the <laughs> and Kendall our three tail told via grandiloquent <laughs> rock opera. Yes. Correct. Actually, now I want to go. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so he's insinuating himself, as you say, but but is useful. His advice to Shiv is good advice because however he may feel about his family and his siblings, like they do have a shared interest in all of this. And he gives her good advice. And uh, I shouldn't be because he's such a little worm, but I was devastated for him that he got duped by this whole. I mean, and also, I, not that I was a huge fan of Carrie to begin with, but I was like, Carrie, I don't like that you were a part of this. Yeah, she she humiliated him. That was painful to watch. It's painful to watch him get humiliated over and over yeah. again. Yeah, and so you know, someone was pointing out to me, maybe the the brilliant minds that read it, but like this idea that the episode ends with Kendall sort of hemmed into this sad little like room, hotel room. And Logan, like the gates opening up and Logan striding out of it. That's how the episode ends for both Mm -hmm. of them. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting visual, visual cue. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of the Kendall Roy experience? Well, I think you put your finger on something with the yelling sequence. That was the moment when Kendall actually most resembled his father. When he had flown off the edge, when he felt like he had to demonstrate his power and intelligence over his siblings and kind of spank them publicly. And in fact, he was right. Uh, he was right that they were fucking it up and that whether it was his father going piss mad, and that's the first time I'm saying piss mad on this episode, um, or whether it was the, you know, Shiv's or Roman's or Jerry's incompetence or what have you, they were fucking up certainly some things that he had worked on, but mostly what the company had been building towards. And it was interesting to watch him wig out while his dad was wigging out. The other thing is that it was a a big fat underline in Sharpie pointing towards the fact that Kendall has all the right instincts and none of the right moves. He's never responded the right way despite knowing how the game is going to be played out. Everything he said to Shiv, as you pointed out, was on point. Every move that needed to be made from other people 
was correct. Just like the acquisition of Volter was probably smart and might have actually set the way forward for the future of Waystar Royco as a progressive new media business. But he doesn't actually know how to follow through. And when he is in the in the mix, when he is involved, when he's negotiating a deal face-to-face with the owner of Volter, he fucks it up. When the deal is made between Stewie and Sandy and Waystar Royco, he can't help but wander his ass out onto the stage and embarrass himself and and essentially destroy his relationship, what feels like permanently with his father. We'll see if that holds up. I mean, I don't, you know, you may know more than I do about that, but I can't imagine a world in which Kendall and Logan don't have something between them. I have no spoilers or, or anything to say about that, but I will say that like, I don't know, every time I think something's permanently broken in this show, like, you know, Shiv and Kendall or something like that. I don't know. We'll see. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned him wandering out on stage doing this terribly embarrassing performance that his poor team uh, of Barry and Comfrey were like desperately trying to get him not to do. Um, you're, by your very absence, I think, <laughs> is something that, that Barry says. But um, um, is is the exact opposite of his press conference triumph at the end of season two. You know what I mean? When like all eyes were on him and he was like, and he was just getting all the reaction he wanted. This was just like awful silence. And when even Greg is like, God, that guy's annoying. Like (laughs) dagger, dagger to the heart, right? Listen to me very carefully. Okay. All of you. This is you throwing it away. You think they're bluffing? They are not fucking bluffing. And you're putting everything I have fought and bled for on the fucking edge. And I am not going to let that happen. Mm -hmm. Do you understand me? Yes. You're not welcome here. You fix it. You fucking fix it. You may go. You are excused. You have no right to be here. Thank you very much for your concern. You, that's such a brilliant. I just want to circle back to your your point about Kendall being the most like Logan when he's yelling, and this idea that he has some of the right moves but not all the right moves, and it goes back to the thing that I constantly think, which is that their powers combined, the unimind to use an Eternals uh, <laughs> thing of Shiv and Roman and Kendall and maybe Connor. I don't know. Like I think together they could be as powerful as their father. Maybe not on their own, but you know. Kendall's insight, Shiv's ability to sort of talk to Sandy. Uh, Like, Shiv did a great job with that conversation. Kendall never could have landed that plan. It's not just because it's like, as two daughters of ailing father sort of thing. It's just like, Shiv had the correct moves there. We've seen her do that before. Um, And and Roman also has his moments in it, you know? So together, you know. Can I I bring up... um, an article that I read about this episode that I really, really enjoyed. Of course. Imagine if I said no. Don't don't bring it up. No other outside media. You've already shouted out Reddit a couple of times, so I don't feel good about you bringing up other, <laughs> other media. No, what did, what did you read? A really good friend of mine, Emily Vanderruff, who writes for Vox, a brilliant, brilliant uh, critic. Uh, she wrote this great piece titled The Four Fs of Trauma Response and the Four Roy Kids of Succession. Um, so the four Fs of Trauma Response... Fight or flight is the one that people are, are the two that people are most familiar with, but freeze and fawn are the other two that makes the four Fs. And Emily wrote a pretty compelling essay about this week's episode, sort of identifying each of the Roy's like siblings and which response is sort of most associated with them. Um, And then she, she does concede that like, it's, it's kind of, it's, not accurate to just peg one response to one kid because they move through them. But I think the most interesting observation she made, first of all, I love, she was like, Connor is flight because he's never there. I was like, that's interesting. But was Roman. 
And for Roman, she most identified freeze. And it made me rewatch the episode and watch how often when something awful is happening, Kieran Culkin's in the background just freezing up. And and Roman is the kid that we know the most about maybe some physical trauma that he has like experienced in, in his uh, life in this family. Um, Obs- but his, observed some of it as well. Yeah, exactly. But his freeze response, um, which then turns into like the fawn response when like Shiv is on the outs and he sidles up to his dad, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a back and forth thing, but like, there's a lot of good background. Everyone is always doing good background a- acting in the show because they never know when the camera's on them. But, Karen is really interesting to watch, I think. Oh, Tony Tourette's. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I want to talk about Roman. I'm glad you brought him up. Um, I thought this was a masterclass from Kieran Culkin, and it all felt very well-timed when you think about his hosting Saturday Night Live, and he was on a bit of a press tour in the run-up to his Saturday Night Live appearance. And, you know, I think, frankly, just like acquitting himself quite well as a public person. You know, the Culkin family, that's that's a complicated tale of American showbiz, and I'm sure he's been through a lot and seen a lot, and he's always been considered, you know, a very gifted stage actor. Of course, Jay Smith Cameron, your guest on this week's episode, he worked quite closely with her partner, Kenneth Lonergan, one of our greatest living uh, writers. And are you a, are you a Margaret fan? A, big, big a massive Margaret fan of Margaret. I'm that that film is out of reach on my shelf, okay. but uh, one day I will wave that to you as well. Okay. And I'm also a massive fan of the play This Is Our Youth, and that is the that is the show in which Kieran kind of like reimagined his concept of being an actor. And you're right that in this episode, he's quite good reacting and playing the back. And also he has that moment in which as his father is going, I'll say it again, piss mad. Okay. I love the phrase piss mad. You can say it as many times as you want. It made me laugh every time in this episode. I'll keep going. But (laughs) at that point, he describes his dad as gambling the company because he's a badass and looking for a reason to be frozen to use Emily's phrasing. You know, that, that, that not having to react and just trust his father is probably his most comfortable state until he does get his showcase in this episode in which he has to tango with POTUS. He hops on the hops on the horn. Loved that they had a little bit of crosstalk there. Rem- reminded me of doing so many podcasts in the last two years over Zoom, which is a very familiar moment. And he has this one-sided phone conversation that performance-wise is amazing. He is this jumble of contortions and head slapping and body quivering, and he's all over the place, but so relatable in this moment of intensity. Uh, just, just big shout out to Kieran Culkin. I think he's such such a great part of the show. The physical comment. I mean, the other great nonverbal moment is when Jerry shouts him out on stage, right? And Roman does the pause, and there's yes. like a like a pan zoom into his face and then he sort of just smiles and walks away. Oh, it's a great a moment. visionary coo is that what he's described <laughs> as like that. Yeah. just like beautiful moment um but also something i noticed on rewatch is that you know shiv sends greg running on an errand twice and each time nicholas braun has something in his hand like the first time he's eating something and he just like runs and eats at the same time the second time he has like <laughs> Two water pitchers in his hand? I don't know. It's just like every time he had like something in his hand, which just like takes the comedy one step over the line to like complete brilliance. So yeah, the the physical comedy shining through with a lot of a lot of the folks in this cast is pretty impressive this episode. Hey, okay, big man. Are you okay? Did you get a did you get a caught? Uh give me a hand. Okay. Yeah, not to do you like you don't need me to Hold the scepter? No. Okay. Okay. Take your time. 
as usual, one of the most tragic figures in this episode is, is Tom. I was hoping your transition would be to Tom. So Tom is we've got I've gotten some some notes from from folks on the internet that have pointed out that maybe we're not maybe we're not playing this properly. Maybe we have not been observing Tom's long game here because we I remember maybe the first or second episode I can't recall which there was a moment after a conversation with Logan in which Tom sneaks off into a bathroom or a meeting room a side room of some kind to make a phone call to a lawyer. And there's a suggestion that maybe Tom is double agent or Tom is prepping some sort of uh, way out. Should he be the fall guy or should things really go belly up at Waystar Royco? Obviously, in this episode, we see him clinging to, humping his wife after she closes the deal and kind of tirelessly seeking procreation so as to, frankly, I think, baby trap her. Um, And also... (laughs) <laughs> he has an incredible exchange with Greg after Greg uh, reveals that he may be suing Greenpeace. But Tom is also this like beautiful surrogate. I feel like he's the person who treats Logan with the most decency when Logan is truly feeling sick from the UTI. You know, he not only escorts him to the bathroom, but he also, when he is um, less cogent, he talks him down and he accepts Logan's reality when he communicates with him, which I thought was kind of a beautiful moment. Matthew McFadden, of course, such a great actor as well. Would you? Where do, where's Tom at? What what what's your read on him right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it, Tom is such. We've talked about this before. How Tom is such an interesting cocktail of like vicious ambition and like actual gentle caring. Like, if I had to pick one person in that room to take care of me when I was sick, I would pick Tom. <laughs> yeah, um, because he's got this sort of like. There's the Midwest nice, but then there's like actual nice. Like he actually, he cares about Shiv. And if Shiv, like uh, there's that moment at the end of the episode after they've had the argument about the baby and after Logan has rebuked Shiv where he goes to hug her and she sort of like shies away and he's like, it's just a, like, just let me hug you. Like just, it's just this. And uh, it's a beautiful like distillation of their relationship where it's like if Shiv could bring herself, I mean, she's understandably wary of him given the conversation they just had, but like if she could bring herself to like, let Tom in, like Tom really does want to just like be a loving, supportive figure to her. That is something that he wants. I found his nurturing, uh, of Logan to be just like a really, I don't know. It it makes me sad for the man that Tom might be. It, you know, if he could just like let go of that other thing, (laughs) that is a part of him, that viciousness. It's so funny that you said you had heard some feedback from people that um, perhaps we weren't reading Tom correctly. I heard some feedback from people who, we talked about this a little bit in the Tom and Greg scene last week, but I heard from some people who were surprised that more people aren't like actually questioning Tom's sexuality or Tom's potential bisexuality or whatever the case may be. Um, And uh, I think, you know, we talked, we talked how like weird weird is not a great word, but how unconventional sex and sexual relationships on this show are. And so I don't want to shut the door on any possibility um, at all, but I do think whatever's happening with Tom and Greg is just like <laughs> miles beyond an ordinary attraction. But I do think there is like attraction there. Do you know? I think that's true. I think one thing we've learned from him between the, um, the bachelor party episode and his encounter uh, at that, party and his 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 physical communication with Shiv is that he likes to be very performative 
about his heterosexual activity, very verbal about it too. He likes to share and sort of like oversell, you know, and that shows a sign of kind of like a, an insecurity perhaps around some of a those compensation things. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. And so it's possible. Whereas between him and Greg seems more pure, seems more intense, seems more. Now I, I think, um, I, what did he say? I would castrate you and marry you and marry you. Yeah. Um, that's verbal. Certainly. Um, it's direct, uh, perhaps it's a little strong, but it seemed true. And I think what's going on between them is very specific between them. I don't yeah. think it, I don't think it's kind of worthy of labels or boundaries or anything. But like I don't that. think it's unsexual. That's what I no, 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 no. It feels, it feels intensely felt. Um, versus his assistance of Logan in the bathroom, despite offering to hold the scepter. That's in a different <laughs> bucket altogether, but I want to shout out this one moment when he goes pop, Papa, like <laughs> that had to have been a Matthew Fadden uh, improv. Like it had to have been. And I, I hope that once they cut, Brian Cox started laughing his ass off because it was so good. I can't, I, I hate to keep dragging my daughter into this, but you know, the word Papa is like in the, in the lexicon right now of child rearing. And I'm like, what? There's too many words for mom and dad. You know, I feel like we're confusing our young children and we're confusing our elder Tom. You know, Tom doesn't totally know how to refer to Logan, even though Logan is clearly, you know, not aware of who Tom is and believes he may be his, I guess he thinks he's Connor. I'm not totally sure who he's mistaken him for as he calls him son when they're in the bathroom stall together. Well, I I want to mention this other thing about Tom and Kendall. What's striking, I think, on rewatch is how long it takes Shiv and Jerry and Roman and everyone else in that room to notice how what's going on with Logan, right? And I like how you pointed out with Roman, it might be really rooted in like denial, like wanting to not have to take responsibility for whatever's happening right here. But I have to think that if I believe, and I could be wrong, that if Kendall were in the room, Kendall would have noticed it earlier. Kendall, I think, uh, Kendall, especially like the man who gave Logan his pills for a whole season, like would have noticed that faster. And Tom's the first. I mean, Tom is also like escorting him to the bathroom, but Tom's like the first to notice it. And I just, I thought that was an interesting sort of wrinkle. Like you're watching it. You're like, how do you guys not see that this man is already ranting? He's already ranting. Like, it's just, I don't know. I think you're right that Kendall would have, he would have ID'd it because he's the most tapped in. He's the most tapped into his father. He's the most tapped into the nature of the business. Like we said, he has all the right instincts, but none of the right moves. I wanted to just shout out Frank very quickly. You know, as a as a as a quasi professional podcaster, the art of the vamp is is a true talent. Quasi, sure. And I, it, it sure seems like, fr- especially the Frank being rebuffed by, I guess it's by Carl at the outset, where he approaches him, speaks to him, and then pushes Frank back out on the stage, and he <laughs> gives a sort of like much ado about, you know, something to do about spiel. That's Good old like Shakespeare Frank on the on the move. Yeah. He's, exactly. He's <laughs> leaning on what he knows best to power his way through this presentation. Have you ever had to give a presentation like that? Have you ever been in a position where you're like, I guess I just have to just keep talking for an extra 10 minutes here? It is painful to have to do that. It is. I'm I'm I I rely on filler words at the best of time, but you will not believe how many <laughs> likes, ums, and uhs I can pull out when I need to stretch. <laughs> no, the the um the comedy of errors of of like our our executives here, which is Carl Frank and Jerry, so interesting. And Carl, what I love about Carl is he is always the first to volunteer to like announce the good news, right? And he gets to 
in the end. But he was supposed to go and relieve Frank, and then he just sort of leaves Frank out. He's just like, nope, we'll leave you out there. There's this amazing shot. I don't know why I love it so much, but every time I watch this episode, I, I zero in on it of like Carl leaving the the green room, wherever they are, their holding room, to, you know, get himself ready to go on stage to talk to Frank. And it's just a shot of him like sort of racing down uh, an empty hallway and like sort of getting his clothes in order and stuff like that. And there was just something like, I don't know, why is that shot in there? I don't know. It just makes the whole thing feel really real and human. Um, but Frank having to vamp, Jerry going out there briefly. Carl going out there and interrupting the video as it's saying we <laughs> we care about women, <laughs> like all of that stuff. Uh, you know, H- Hugo asking if they could call in a bomb threat. To your earlier point, there's there's a what did you say a lick for everyone uh, yeah. in this episode? Everyone yeah. gets a taste. You everyone know? gets That's, a taste. Yeah, it's like a big. Every episode is like a big ice cream cone. You'll see. I've got a lot of overworked food metaphors for this television <laughs> program. Your life is not a bagatelle. Because you are putting yourself in the service of a monstrous endeavor. Because, because you need to take yourself seriously, kid. One yeah. other person that I think we should talk about is Greg. Uh, Greg the Egg is in a in a, a state of confusion. It feels like he. It's not totally clear where he wants to put his alliances. Mm. When we first see him, he's with the Roys, and then he very quickly moves over to Kendall to have a conversation with him about whether or not he's going to be burned, which Kendall says he is, and then he might be burned. It sure sounds like he's going to be burned. And then he goes to meet with Ewan and Pew to discuss potentially returning to their fold, which then leads to, frankly, perhaps the most punishing line delivery of the season, which is James Cromwell changing the register, exiting the Ewan voice, and returning to the James Cromwell you know, grand like stern grandfather voice, the true that, stern. That'll the, that'll do, Greg. Is yes, that, the the, yeah. the, the the babe voice, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and he says because you need to take yourself seriously, kid. When telling him why he will not yeah. be receiving his fortune, I thought this was a very important and impactful scene in a, a very brief moment in the episode. Where where's Greg at? Yeah, and Braun really, Nicholas Braun really absorbed, like he played that as Greg really absorbing that. And then, of course, Greg goes on to say that he's going to sue Greenpeace. So, like, you know, so it's a light absorption. It's not like the bounty picker ever of, of absorption, but like, you know, it's, it's, it feels like something. We've talked about what's Greg's future and all this, how Greg always seems to be in the right place at the right time, like how Greg, there's a way for Greg to maybe carve a path upwards for himself. And this idea of you need to t- take yourself more seriously. Like we we would be distraught to lose him as like a clownish figure on the show, but um we've talked before about wanting character development from from people. It's interesting this idea it seems like he goes over to Kendall's like just to see Comfrey. Like that sort of seems like why he goes over there. Again, we see Kendall mishandle Greg in a baffling way. Like it would be so easy if Kendall just turned on some honey for him to have Greg on his team and he doesn't, and then there's no quarter for Greg with his grandfather. And then he's just back to being a background, you know, buffoon, uh, in, in the Roy family circus. So I don't know. It's a, it's yeah. He's like ping ponging around in a very interesting way. Is it, is Greg a vitally important character to this show? In what sense do you mean for like entertainment value or, or plot value? Or I think it's, I think it's, not debatable entertainment value. I think Nicholas Braun is world-class, you know, comic relief yeah. and uh, breaking up the sort of 
pure anger that is emanating from a lot of the Roy's, but to the future of the story, do you think long-term he is, he will continue to be what he's been presented as a critical figure, but he's never really actually been involved in critical events. This goes back to what we were talking about. I think in our preseason discussion of succession in terms of like the characters as they were written in the pilot versus who they become given the talents of the actors, the idea that Kieran Culkin was in serious contention for Cousin Greg. So, like, imagine this whole thing, but Kieran Culkin's playing Cousin Greg, a very different would character, right? Yeah, that would, it would have been so different. As a plot device, what Greg is in the pilot and the beginning of the series is an outsider insider, right? Like, he's an outsider which helps the audience understand this world that he's coming into because it needs to be explained to him. And so then it's explained to us, right? But he's an insider. He's a cousin so that he can be at the family gatherings. But he's an outsider figure in that way that helps with exposition, grounding us in that world. But he quickly burned through that role. Like he's not really in that role at all anymore. And so what is his function in this world? And I think most of us are there because we're for the Tom and Greg show, mm. but what to what end? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know either. I'm I'm interested because I think he's he's doing something very interesting with that performance, and he has been positioned routinely as this critical swing vote. And I don't know if he actually is that. I'm trying. I'm still trying to work my way through it. Right. And in this case, you know, like what you know, what role is he going to play in this case, or is this going to be another like Sound and Fury signifying nothing sort of moment for? Which, you know, it just all keeps resetting is what it feels like. But um, are you having any issues with that? There, I think there is some frustration amongst some viewers that, you know, we mentioned last week, we're here for the journey. We're here for the interactions. We're here yeah. for the dynamism of the moment to moment writing and performance. But I think some people, we are a plot conscious nation. We are. We like to know where shit is going. Yeah. Whether it's our, our national politics or our prestige television. Do you think this is an issue for them potentially? Um, I've definitely heard that and I definitely thought that. Like, and I think uh when I was watching these episodes in isolation before I was watching talking to you about them week to week, um, I felt the Kendall backslide to be frustrating. This idea of like I, f- I felt like I really followed him on a journey in season two, and I felt really invested in his journey, and I felt really surprised and delighted by the turn it took in the end. And then it feels like this felt like a reset to the asshole idiot that he was in season one. And so that, I can point to that as a source of frustration. But overall, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this show just ends up being like a hang because, you know, something that Chris and Andy brought up on The Watch this week is just sort of like they can't see the show. They can't see a Loganless season of this show. And as we've talked about before, Logan was supposed to die at the end of season one didn't because I don't think the writers can see a Loganless show, but like the actors keep talking. This is not a spoiler. Cause I don't know. I've not seen like the end of the season, but like the actors keep talking about things are building to something like a breaking point. They've, they've all said something like that in interviews. I, I have no idea what that breaking point might look like. My mind reels, like could Logan die? Could he get arrested and sent to jail? Like, you know, what, what would this thing be built to? This is me genuinely speculating because I don't know, but, um, that maybe is the plot that is promised 
for people we're, who are feeling a lack of pro- plot, you know? We're all waiting for Comfrey's rise. Next season is going to be all about how oh. her ascension to the, to the top of the succession power rankings. Um, how about you? Are you feeling sort of... No, not really. I mean, like I said, it, it just doesn't really bother me. I, I've, I've got plenty of plot in all of my other shows. I've got an MCU show coming up, you know, ready to devour all of that plot and I'll enjoy it and appreciate it for all that it's worth. The show is not about that for me, but I do think that there is, like I said, a certain sector of the fandom that may start to feel like we can't just keep resetting, as you said. We have to figure out a longer-term structural <laughs> approach for this show. <laughs> well, something that's funny about this episode, you know, this idea, this reaction that, like, oh, nothing major happened in this episode, which a president <laughs> effectively resigned. Right. <laughs> we didn't um, even talk about that. <laughs> Uh, because of <laughs> what our characters did on their TV show, you know, like yep, touche. A presidency <laughs> ended, and like, um, and Roman has a great sort of lampshade. You know, he's like, you know, the the end of the republic, our, our ability to topple a republic, or, or whatever he says. Like, it's it's great, but like, that's not who I've been waiting for succession to go down. This idea, like, you know, Connor and the reason and a presidential race. Like, what are we going to become? Like move from a media show into a political show. I think that could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, so. it's this, this show could be bigger than Waystar Royco and the Royce. Um, it isn't yet, but it is expanding and its cast is expanding. It's also an expansive episode. I thought visually just unusually. Um, what a transition. It, it's on you. Thank, thank you, John. <laughs> it's unusually interested in, the building blocks of the city and the access to power. You mentioned those hallways that the characters are kind of walking down all by themselves and kind of gathering themselves before speaking. There's a lot of like folding up the chairs and getting the the shareholders meeting ready. There's a lot of helicopter shots of the city at dusk. You know, there there are all of these, um, this was a big kind of table setting sort of episode where every little machination mattered. Every little turn of the key mattered. And I don't know if that's, you know, something in um, the direction that Kevin Braving brings to it. I think not every episode is necessarily as interested as, you know, the entering of the car waiting to pick you up. And um, I don't know what that was trying to insinuate to us. Maybe just that like big doings were on the horizon here, but it felt a a slightly different visually than previous episodes. I think that's really interesting. Um, It's a table setting episode, which is a way to describe TV plot, but it's also like we literally watch tables being set as they set up this this uh shareholder meeting and <clears throat> we've seen that before like when they went to the the summer palace i think is the name of that episode is it right uh where where you know there's the like the rotting raccoons in the chimney and then we have to watch the staff dump like lobsters and like all this decadent food in the trash. And again, I saw a bunch of food being dumped in the trash in this episode. It's just like, it's that the waste of it all is one thing. But also, if you look at the title of this episode, Retired Janitors of Idaho, which is something Roman says dismissively about their minority shareholders, you know, I think that idea of the little people, a phrase that is repugnant, but like that, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the best shots of this entire episode is Jess's face as she reacts to the rabbit news. Rolling her eyes. 
I'm like doing something with her chin. I didn't know humans could do. It's just like a pursing <laughs> of the lips and a like something with her chin that was incredible. But I think, I think this episode is interested. We we've talked before about episodes that are interested in like highlighting how high in the clouds they are. I think this one is interested in like the fact that they're in their separate holding pen away from, you know, the the, the people who are part of their company, but they don't mix. You know. Feels important. A lot of important stuff to come, including me catching up to you soon on the on the watch of this show. Two Are more you excited? episodes. Yeah, because <laughs> then I don't feel like I have to tiptoe at all. Then I can just throw wildly speculative questions at you. Like, you what's going to happen next? You can be speculative. I, I, I have an incredible good, poker face. I'm not good at that. That isn't a skill I have. I'm very good at when I'm sitting in a movie theater and I'm watching a movie. Within 20 minutes, I have a pretty good feel for where the movie's going. And it's hard to surprise me in movies these days. TV, I, 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 I'm not good at this at all. This is not my domain, I have to admit. I think it's because you've seen a movie or two. Uh, it's probably why it's hard to... Or three. Yes, I have. You want to cue us into J. Smith Cameron? Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's hear from, from uh, Jerry herself about this episode. <laughs> um, with all due respect, Jerry, get bent. Look, okay, sure, it's humiliating, and I'm 99% certain your dad would agree. But given where we're at, I have to check in with him. I'm sorry. Okay. Is she going to fuck us? What? No, I don't know. What the fuck are you asking me? I don't know. So happy to see you wearing this powerful red color. <laughs> I have a red power uh, question for you. I wanted to start by talking about your incredible red suit that you wear in that episode, actually. Um, I got a chance to talk to you around season two. We talked about Jerry's clothing, which I am kind of obsessed with. And I was wondering if what discussions there were around her hair, her clothing as she moves into this new position in this season. Michelle Matlin and I and Angel, who's the hairdresser, we've talked about her sort of Nancy Pelosi power dressing type in a general way that that's sort of, um, you know, I think she puts the sort of ethical, nice face on Waystar a lot. You know, she seems like reasonable and believes in uh, obeying the law and uh, and good and evil. And that, so she kind of, and she's good at thinking on her feet and good at talking to people. And so I think this is her, you see her at her strong point in a way at these events, uh, like at the Senate hearings, I think she had, you know, she's very self-possessed and um, she's just trained for that. She's a, a lawyer, you know? Uh, so I think that, you know, that's a very, um, you know, powerful color. The red suit is like, kind of says it all. And uh, I think my hair had a more um, helmety, hair helmet kind of look uh, in that episode. Then I remember feeling like, this doesn't quite feel like Jerry, but this is the public face of Jerry. So, And I'm wondering, you know, outside of uh, hair and costuming, what are some of the larger conversations you might've had with the writers about Jerry's journey in season three? Like, you know, was there, were you given any in larger indication of what to expect throughout the season. I mean, I knew that I, at some point I knew that she gets named as uh, CEO. That happens pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And then uh, really, you know, we get our scripts at the last minute. And I mean, maybe Brian or somebody is privy to some of the things that they're thinking, but I, I'm not. And I, and it's just as well. I kind of like, um, and because also they, even what they plan and they write, they rewrite and they rewrite. And, and then they give us a, they give us a, a, a chance to, as Mark Mylod puts it, mess it up a bit and put it in our own words sometimes. So it's kind of a, you know, evolving thing. 
And so you don't want to anticipate it too much because you could get, you could fall in love with something that then, you know, you, you might have something a little bit wrong and then you have to kind of make an adjustment that's uncomfortable. It's better to kind of let it be almost feel improvisational. I'm wondering if, if there's ever though a piece of information you get in a, I don't know, episode seven script or later and you're like, oh, that would have been good to know. When oh, I was definitely <laughs> playing oh, this. Definitely. Yeah. No mistake. Yes. But you don't think anything's being withheld on purpose. I mean, no. I mean, maybe there's some wisdom to like not ever as a as a as a policy, you know, to like never leak too much to your actors because um, you know, they might get wed to some idea and then be disappointed or 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 misunderstand it. I don't know. I'm not sure what they're if they have a like a policy about it, but it's it's often the case that that showrunners are kind of closed mouthed about where they're moving towards. But yeah, definitely, I would like to have known for the beginning certain <laughs> things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about Jerry in this in this position because she has been so careful all along to not put her neck out in a way that could really hurt her. She's so political and savvy in that way. So, what do you think made her take? this gig that puts her in such a vulnerable position out in front, you know? Oh, I don't think she could. I don't think, she, I think it was, uh, you know, not something she could refuse. Um, and also I think she already probably sees herself as operating that job without the official title. And so I think it was kind of fun to get the credit credit for a little while. Um, but I don't think, I'm not sure it felt that hugely different for her. I think it was a little bit like, it felt to me like when, when she gets the call and it's like, huh, about time, you know, like, but I think she also knew what uh, you get given gets taken away. So, you know, I just think that's the nature of working at that with that family. I mean, the thing is I'm very protective of Jerry and I definitely think she deserves this role. I'm just scared for her. Uh, in a way I haven't been scared for her before, maybe. And uh, and it seems to me, you say it's not that different, but it seems to me that there is a little bit more uncertainty, uh, at least, that we're seeing from her in some of these spots, where I feel like before she's been very political, she'll ask for people's advice, but she's never seemed quite as uncertain as we see her this season. Do you agree or disagree? What do you think? You know, until you said that, I mean, I didn't really particularly think of it exactly that way. I think everyone, everyone, all the characters are increasingly less certain, like it's careening out of control sort of, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think when, you know, back at the beginning of the story, Roman, the kids are kind of feeling out who could be CEO if, if, when, when Logan's in his coma at the very, very beginning. And uh, Jerry's like, no, thank you. Which intrigues Roman right, right from that point already. And I think it's like, she says, I don't want the job. It makes your head explode. But she also knows they're in terrific debt, but she doesn't reveal to the audience or to Kendall until the end of the episode. But I think it's different if Logan asks you to do that because he is in a, a tight spot and can't do it. I think there, I think that's a favor you can't refuse. So I think, yes, she's vulnerable, but I think she has very little choice. So I think she's got a sort of a stoic and soldier-like attitude about, you know, marching orders kind of. And yeah. And I think there's definitely some status and, um, she's enjoying that. And I, I think she's been around the block and she doesn't, she knows not to count on anything lasting. And I think she probably knows she's the most likely to be, um, discreet and careful 
um, as she's the best possible spokesperson for the company right then. And so even if it's a vulnerable feeling, I think in some ways she must feel safer than having one of the hothead kids in charge of speaking to the shareholders or to the press or to the DOJ. In terms of that safety though, what does it do for her sense of security in this episode to see Logan in episode five, Logan so out of control because he's ill and, you know, incomprehensible at certain points? Yeah. I think that's terrifying for, for all, every, all of them. No one knows quite what's going on. I mean, we've kind of found, find out late that he's, he's ill. We don't know what's going on. And for the longest time, we're like, oh, he says to do this, do this. And, you know, it, 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 it's like anyone else would know that something was wrong, but they're so, you know, blindly, you know, devoted or, they, you know, they, they're so used to t- just, you know, not asking questions, but, but forging ahead. So I think that's part of the comedy of that episode. That's a little bit has a it has a quality of a screwball comedy. Absolutely. Um, there's this there's this moment in this episode where uh, you know, Roman says to Jerry, you picked your prince, you know, like don't don't screw this up now, don't back out now. Uh, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, you know, she calls him a visionary when she's up on stage. She has him get on the phone with the president, et cetera. But do you think Jerry ever wonders if she hitched her wagon to the to the wrong Roy in Roman? Sure. I mean, Roman is a loose cannon and he's kind of silly and he won't drop this uh, sexual kind of possibly slightly pervy sexual thing. He's, and I don't think he's interested in carrying it through. I mean, I don't think I, I think, I don't think I think that I don't think Jerry thinks that he's really actually serious about it. So what, for whatever reason, we're playing this little game. And, um, and I think that, yeah, I think there's a little bit like, but I think maybe there's some part of her that's like, oh, well, you know, he's uh, pushing back. That shows some gumption. So maybe she's like, okay, fair enough. It's a visionary. Okay. And I do love the shape of Roman and Jerry this season because I think some showrunners or writers might be tempted given how everyone, you know, exploded with joy around uh, the Roman and Jerry of it all last season. I think some people might be tempted to put their foot on the gas a little harder with them this season to just sort of give the people what they want, et cetera. And I really like, it's still there, but we're still in that sort of cat and mouse pullback phase. And I mean, is that, is that your general assessment of uh, succession as a whole? Like they're not going to lean into something that fans are reacting to? Yeah. I think that's absolutely Jesse's way is to not pander to anyone. And Also, I think he's got, you know, the long, he's playing the long game to whatever degree. Like, I think, you know, he knows things that we don't know to to whatever degree they're resolved. I don't know, as I say, but I think, you know, he, he knows where people are going a little bit more than we do. So he may know what he, that he doesn't need to, you know, do this or that for it to be a pleasing storyline. So it does. It does. Uh, he's got the bigger, the bigger picture in mind. Um, you mentioned in an interview, I think it was with THR that you said, uh, you called the Roman and Jerry relationship sad and fascinating in terms of me too. And all of this, especially like the way in which, you know, the reason they're having the shareholder meeting, uh, in episode five is because of, uh, a sexual harassment, sexual assault scandal. So can you expound a little bit more on how you put Roman and Jerry in that pocket, if you do? 
I do not think that Jerry feels vulnerable to any kind of harassment from him. Mm. I think she's, you know, she's always like struggling to take him seriously at all. And she's his boss. And I mean, I don't think she feels unsafe, but I think she does think like, oh my God, could you just behave just for optics? Couldn't you see the whole company's in great trouble? So I think it's, it's just like you, she's doing him every favor by trying to keep him from derailing. He's too foolish to, or too wayward, you know, to care about that. When you enter a third season, knowing that the first season was a word of mouth hit, the second season was like a massive expansion of a hit. When you enter the third season, then you know, you know, it's not a fluke, you know, like season one wasn't a fluke. We've done season two. People also really like that. And we felt good about it. How does that affect your attitude coming into a season three? Well, I, it always makes me nervous because, um, you know, things like that can be so fickle and, and so arbitrary, like, uh, you know, you're never quite sure what people are responding to or uh, may not even be what they think they're responding to. And so it's hard to feel, um, to take, you know, I have an um, incredible instinct not to take any of that too seriously. Um, and to, uh, to, so to me, I just think about like the story is still really good. The characters are credible and yet they do wild, you know, things I didn't see coming. It's still interesting and, and deep and complicated for me. So I can, it has a great deal of uh, fascination for me. And I think the more we all commit to it, then, you know, I think that that gets passed on to the viewer. Like, you know, I have this theory that, um, there's a big audience that really like, you know, more intellectual kind of pieces where they have to work things out and they have to pay attention and they have to make some leaps on their own and they have to put some, they have to uh, infer some things, you know, and they can't just like only be vegging out in front of the TV. They have to kind of work at it, bring something of themselves to it. And I think they, I think that audiences today enjoy that. And there's a real audience for that kind of smart TV and I think as long as we can stay honest to that agenda, I think things look good for us, but I, I can't, I can't bear to think about like, oh, are we going to stay in favor or, you know, I right, think you right. kind of can't think that way, you know? And my last, my last question to you is so, so quick, which is just, do you have a favorite line that is yours or someone else's from this season? It's Roman's line when Colin, the bodyguard is taking the empty bag past Kendall. And he and Kendall's like, what is that? You know, paranoid. And Roman says, it's an imaginary dead cat. Fuck off. <laughs> Perfect. God, I, was <laughs> I, just, I could not, I was standing on camera, but I was like <laughs> dying. And in fact, on Colbert, they asked us to just to free associate one word for the season. And I said, cat, because I was scared <laughs> to say dead cat. But uh, so I'm hoping that by the time, if anyone remembers the Colbert episode, that by then they'll be like, oh, that must be what what she was referring to. It was the dead cat in the bag. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Okay, Joanna. Thank you so much to Jay Smith Cameron for spending some time with you. Thank you to our Dynamite producer, Steve Allman, who is the number one you and hater, but the number one producer (laughs) on this podcast. And uh, stick around on the Prestige TV pod. All kinds of shows coming up, including a pre-cap with CR and Waz later this week. There's a whole bunch of other shows. You know, Yellowstone is back. What else is on this feed? 
Uh, Chris and I are talking about The Great next week, a show I love. Yeah. yeah, How's season two? Good? Oh, fantastic. I love to hear that. Uh, So stick around on this show and, and check us out next Wednesday. We'll be back with episode number six of Succession season three. See you then. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.